0: To support the station by visiting kpfk.org to make your donation
1: if your automobile truck boat motorcycle rv or aircraft is no longer reliable it can still go a long way towards supporting the programs you rely on as a donation to donate it to kpfk call 877-kpfk-auto that's 877-kpfk-a-u-t-o you're listening to KPFK, ninety point seven
2: FM, Los Angeles. The time now is six PM.
3: Get ready for the revolution.
4: What you KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles.
2: Happy International Women's Day. And here are today's headlines. Nabian Rossing Union Miners Fighting Against Chinese National Nuclear Corporation. Commentary by Dr. Sakibu Hutchison of the Women's Leadership Project about the skyrocketing levels of sadness and depression among girls and queer youth. U.S. trade preference status placed on Ethiopia. Black history advocate Mr. Ernest Crime III. International news from non-NATO media outlets, along with more international news from Don DeBar and the Community Calendar. Good evening, I'm Angela Birdsong. City of Inglewood Council District runoff election between incumbent George Dotson and challenger Gloria Gray shows Gray is in the lead with over 60% of the votes counted so far, despite the low. Voter turnout according to lavote.gov results as of today, March 8th. In June 2013, Dotson was elected as city councilman representing Inglewood's first district. Gray, the first African American woman elected to the West Basin Municipal Water District Board of Directors in 2006, currently represents Inglewood and unincorporated Los Angeles County areas of Lenox, South Ladera Heights. West Athens and Westmont. Ingwood residents are watching closely at this race. In anticipation of the March 31st, 2023, into the COVID. Nineteen public health emergency protections for Los Angeles County residents receiving Medi-Cal benefits. The Department of Public Social Services, DPSS, reminds customers to update their contact information to help keep their active, their coverage active in a recent press release. Medi-Cal California's version of Medicaid provides free or low cost healthcare coverage for 3.7 million LA County residents and with limited income. Income and resources. Last year, Congress passed the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, which established the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency to be on March 31st, 2023. This action also ended the continuous health coverage protections in place during the pandemic. Medical health coverage will not stop on March 31st. DPSS will over the next 12 months reassess every case to determine ongoing eligibility. Therefore, it is essential that Medi-Cal participants ensure that DPSS has their most updated contact information, including names, addresses, telephone numbers, and email addresses. Medi-Cal participants will receive a renewal form in the U.S. mail that should be completed in return as soon as possible. This form also also be submitted online, in person or by phone. For more information, please visit dpss.lacounty.gov. The US has refused to restore Ethiopia's preferential trade status unless it submits to an international investigation of human rights violations during the Ethiopian civil war, which ended in December 2022. Pacifica's and Garrison reports.
4: On January 1, 2022, the U.S. canceled Ethiopia's tariff-free access to the U.S. market because of alleged human rights violations during the Ethiopian Civil War. At the outset of the war, in November 2020, Ethiopia had the fastest-growing economy on the African continent, and the U.S. trade preference had been stimulating its industrial base and generating foreign exchange. Suspension of the trade preference cost 5,000 Ethiopians their jobs. The war ended in December when federal forces defeated the Tigray People's Liberation Front, a long-time U.S. proxy, but the U.S. is refusing to restore Ethiopia's trade preference unless it agrees to cooperate with a U.N. investigation of war crimes, which could lead to international prosecutions. Ethiopia has established its own process for investigating and prosecuting war crimes and moved to have the UN investigation terminated. International war crimes tribunals typically affirm the foreign policy objectives of the U.S. and its Western allies. While the U.S. uses tariff-free access to the U.S. market as a carrot and stick to impose its will on Ethiopia, China has stepped up to offer the country tariff-free access to its own much larger market. Chinese global television network host Zhang Shi spoke with Ethiopian finance minister Ahmed Shidi. China will grant zero tariff
5: treatment to 98% of taxable items originating from Ethiopia starting March 1st. How important is that for Ethiopia and what are your expectations when that kicks off?
0: First of all, we would like to commend to the leadership of China under President Xi Jinping for offering this zero-tariff treatment for Ethiopia's taxable export items and also other countries. This shows very timely and proper decision from the People's Republic of China to advance our cooperation. This will also facilitate export of uh, Ethiopia to China which is very, very important and uh, the investment we made in the past the fundamental objective was to enhance our production capacity, and this new decision is fully welcomed by our prime minister and the government. And uh, the companies, Ethiopian companies and international companies who are in Ethiopia, will benefit from this. And as a result of this, the production capacity in Ethiopia will be enhanced. And particularly at this period, where there is multiple challenges of COVID. International price increase due to conflict in Ukraine, uh, climate-related problems we have of drought. This will support Ethiopia's growth and development, and the solidarity the People's Republic of China has shown for uh, this period is is very useful, and we are very thankful of this.
4: That was Ethiopian Finance Minister Ahmed Shidi speaking with CGTN host Zhang Shi. China is Ethiopia's largest trading partner, source of investment, and project contractor. It is the country's partner in construction of the railroad between its capital, Addis Ababa, and Djibouti's ports on the Gulf of Aden and the Indian Ocean, at the interface of Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. For Pacifica, I'm Ann
2: that was Pacifica's Anne Garrison on U.S. and Chinese trade policies in Ethiopia. Black history advocate Mr. Ernest Krim III for Women History Month highlight a couple of women who fight against all odds. First, Joella Jones, followed by the story of Polly.
6: Auntie Juella Jones was like, look, I'm tired of being enslaved, so I'm going to burn down your house. Auntie Jurella Jones tried to burn down her enslaver's home during the Civil War, a man named Thomas Farrell. Not only that, but also during the Civil War, she attempted to go around and burn down every overseer's home she could find. Her philosophy was to never be loyal to a slave master. I've been trying to tell y'all our people were not backing down. They fought back in a variety of ways. Because her story wasn't documented well, I can't say for sure if she was successful in her endeavors, but I'll say the very fact that she tried was a success to me, and it's very inspiring. Auntie was a G, and her actions are a reminder that what we have inside of us is greater than any adversity we face. Your Aunt Polly was out here stabbing slave catchers with butcher knives and throwing hot boiling water on them to free us. If that ain't a G, I don't know what is, but let me explain. We don't know much about Polly's early life, but we do know that she was enslaved and she escaped to a place called Africa, Ohio. That place is now called Ripley, Ohio, and it's literally a stone's throw away from Kentucky, which is slave territory. Because of that, Polly saw a lot of stuff she ain't really like. For example, after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, white folks were incentivized to catch any black person and sell them into slavery. And because she was on this border, she saw a lot of white folks acting like they were underground railroad conductors when they were actually slave catchers or overseers. She knew they wanted younger black folks, so she dressed up like an older woman. And went to town with clothing that was large enough to conceal her weapons. So, whenever she saw a slave catcher in action, she pulled out that thing, that knife, and that boiling water. And afterwards, when she freed us, she let us stay on her land.
2: For more history to empower and educate with ErnestCrim.com. Here is KPFK Rebel Alliance International News. Protesters in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia have been throwing Molotov cocktails at police and protest of a news of a new law that would require foreign nonprofits to register as agents of foreign governments. The law is a milder version of the U.S. Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA, first enacted in 1938 and used regularly by the Justice Department to this day. The protesters are carrying EU and Ukraine flags and enjoy the support of the outgoing president who is currently out of the capital, Tbilisi, on a visit to Washington. Don DeBar has more.
7: An apparent attempt to overthrow the government of the Republic of Georgia entered its second day in what appears to be an attempted replay of the Maidan in Ukraine. RT's Nikki Aaron filed this report on Wednesday.
8: Thousands are taking to the streets in a second day of protest against a new foreign agent bill passed by Parliament. Several other cities have also hosted mass rallies. Many women have joined the demonstrations in a march against what they call total control. US and EU flags have been spotted in the crowds in front of Georgia's Parliament building in Tbilisi. Let's get the details now from our correspondent who's there for us, Don Quarter. Don, many thanks for joining us. Uh, tell, Tell us what the situation on the ground is like at the moment and does it look like things are heating up or cooling down?
5: Hi there, Nikki. Well, I'm in the center of the action here in Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia. Right behind me, the Parliament building in front of which thousands of people have gathered to oppose this draft legislation that the Parliament passed uh, that would essentially make it so that every organization that receives over 20% of their funding from foreign sources would have to register as foreign agencies. A lot of these protesters are calling this a russian style law there's a lot of ukrainian flags here and european union flags some implied anti-russian sentiment even though this uh, a very similar law also exists in the united states actually it was uh, passed back in 1938 before any sort of uh, foreign agency law was passed in russia or of course draft legislation here now today the protests have been relatively peaceful but the protesters leadership have given the parliament an ultimatum they've said that the parliament has one hour to release all of the protesters who have been arrested here and revoke its support for this draft legislation. Otherwise, the protesters will take quote-unquote different measures. That's because, I mean, uh, yesterday when these protests broke out, they were anything but peaceful. We saw protesters throwing Molotov cocktails, setting up Barricades. They even tried to storm the parliament building in in an event that a lot of people have been likening to the events of uh, the Euromaidan coup d'etat back in 2014 that happened in Ukraine. Now, the Georgian president right now is in the United States, and she released a video supporting the protesters and calling for the parliament to revoke its uh, support for this draft legislation, coming out in criticism of this draft legislation. So we've got some sort of rift right here right now between the Parliament and the President. Uh, It's not so clear whether it's going to uh, heat up or cool down right now. The Parliament seems pretty firm in its position, and if it stays that way, it's very likely that we will see a continuation of what happened last night as well, where Oh, uh, around 60 uh, protesters were arrested, and around 50 police officers were injured.
7: Nebojsa Malic is a Serbian-American journalist, blogger, and translator. He spoke with RT's Nikki Aaron earlier in the day about what was motivating the organizers of the protests in Tbilisi, and also some background about the law that's the subject of the protests, including the one that exists in the United States and how it was treated on January 6th, 2021.
9: Judging by the number of Ukrainian flags seen at these at these riots and the fact that the Ukrainian state propaganda is, is really interested in what's going on, I'm inclined to believe that Kiev has a direct interest in overthrowing the current Georgian government and replacing it with one that would be more pro-Ukrainian oriented because they've been attempting for the past year to uh, basically bring in Georgia on their side and open a second front against Russia in the Caucasus. And the Georgian government, to their credit, um, has refused to do this. They're not necessarily, they're sort of turning a blind eye to Georgians who go to Ukraine to enlist in the Ukrainian military, there's like a Georgian Legion and all these other formations that are pretty notorious on the battlefield. but. They're officially staying out of it because they don't want to fight a war with Russia. They saw what it looks like in 2008. They didn't like it. They're still having a territorial dispute. They would prefer to resolve it peacefully. And they don't want to be cannon fodder for outside actors, which is partly why they're doing this whole foreign agent law. And I'm, I'm guessing this also might be um, based on a suspicion that there are external forces, such as the State Department, trying to push them into basically taking part in this, in this conflict on behalf of the U.S. as opposed to on behalf of some Georgian interests.
8: Hmm. Uh, well, well, we have the uh, Georgian prime minister who's standing by the bill. The uh, Georgian president has said that she will veto the bill if it reaches her desk. She's spoken out in support of the protests as well, as we know. What sort of power struggle are we now seeing in the country and which side looks to have the most public support?
9: Well, that will depend. Um, The president, I believe, based on this most recent reforms, the president's position is the next president's position will be largely ceremonial. The current president was elected uh, in a popular vote, and she was actually backed by the current ruling party, but they had a falling out about a year or two ago. And so now she's basically representing just herself. I believe she was elected in 2018, so her mandate might be coming to an end very soon. And um, you have a situation in which you have a popularly elected government. I believe the ruling party has close to an absolute majority in the parliament by itself, um, given like out of uh, 150 seats, they have 74 and there's 12 vacants. So they really have more than 50 percent just by themselves, whereas the largest opposition party by itself has like 12. So really, I mean, if you're judging by election results, the current ruling, uh, the current government has the popular support. But if you're looking at the street protests, then it seems like the opposition can, can you know, try to sort of force street democracy upon it. So now, now the final question is whether the government will actually um, bend a knee um, to this attempted color revolution and, you know, surrender to the demands of the street, or whether they will uphold the rule of law such as it is and resist foreign pressure.
8: Comparisons are already being made uh, to what we're seeing right now in Tbilisi. And of course, what happened in Ukraine in the Maidan uprising, uh, you know, crowds of people waving EU flags, American flags. To what extent can we draw parallels between the 2014 uprising in Ukraine and what's happening right now in Tbilisi?
9: Well, uh, it, it's uh, actually uh, the, the bit better parallel is 2003 because the original Georgian revolution, the, the Rose Revolution of 2003 was another a uh, color revolution inspired and, and run by the United States that brought the uh, government of Mikhail Sa- Saakashvili into power. And the, the current government of Georgia uh, basically emerged in 2012 as opposition to this, and uh, this uh, foreign agent law that they're trying to enact is essentially trying to limit the influence of the State Department and Western, well, all NGOs in general, but Western ones in particular, because they've sort of been running the country for the past 20 years, w- regardless of who's actually in the government. I mean, I'm sort of sitting here um, being baffled as to how you know tens of thousands of people would object to a law si- trying to um, enact some sort of transparency as to you know where this foreign money is coming from into uh, quasi-governmental agencies determining a country's policy, and yet here's Georgians basically being told by the opposition. Which is led by Sagashvili's old party. um he's, I believe, is in jail for and attempting to overthrow the government. um that you know, this is a Russian law. Well, it's actually an American law. It, the, you know, as you said, the far is actually harsher, and it it involves criminal penalties for individuals. This is infinitely uh, more lenient. And yet here they are denouncing this as a Russian law and saying this is against their European values. But European Union has harsher laws for people they regard to be foreign agents, and they've literally censored and, and banned um, and confiscated property of people that they, you know, consider to be interfering. The Americans themselves are enacting far uh, against political opponents and dissidents. So, and then you have the U.S. Embassy saying, oh, this is an attack on democracy. Well, what gives? If it's an attack on democracy, why, you, why do you have your own law? You know, why do you keep, enforce this law at home? It can't possibly be that this law is terrible when enacted in Georgia, but great when enacted in Washington, D.C.
8: Yeah, we've seen this extreme reaction from a huge number of people. Reports say that protesters have been throwing Molotov cocktails as well at the police. So it's clearly not a peaceful protest, is it? So why then would the country's president, as well as Western politicians and the media, be supporting the riots if they're not peaceful?
9: Well, when you when you speak about the president of Georgia, you have to bear in mind that she was born in France. She was the French ambassador to Georgia, and then in two thousand four, when after Saakashvili came to power, uh, he gave her uh, Georgian citizenship and appointed her foreign minister. So you know she's quite literally acting on behalf of the of the EU and the US, um, and she's currently in the US for state visits. So or maybe a private visit. I don't know. She spoke from New York and she's saying, you know, oh, I'm against this. Well, I'm sorry, lady, but, you know, if if the vast majority of lawmakers in the parliament vote in favor of a law, how is that not democracy? I mean, either Georgia has a, a state in which there are rules and procedures or, you know, whatever the American embassy says goes, but in that case, don't call it a democracy. Call it a colony. Call it an oligarchy. Call it whatever. But it's it's definitely not a sovereign democracy
8: in January 2021, um, when protesters stormed Congress, uh, Washington was very quick to condemn the protesters who did that. It was an insurrection. So why now are the same tactics being uh, condoned by the West in Georgia?
9: Well, because it's never about tactics. Uh, the tactics. Uh, uh, so the, the way this logic works in Western political establishment is that it doesn't matter what one does. Only who does it to whom. So when, for example, American Republicans have a mass protest outside the Capitol and question the results of an election, that's clearly not acceptable and not allowed. And, you know, terrorism, crime, greatest attack on our democracy since Pearl Harbor. But when Ukrainians set police officers on fire and insist on overthrowing their legitimately elected government... That's democracy, because they're doing it on behalf of the State Department and Victoria Nuland, who's giving them out cookies. When the Georgians set police officers on fire and show up with gas masks and helmets and you know throw fireworks at police, that's democracy. But if that same police acts like the Capitol Police did on January 6th, then that's dictatorship. The US itself has a much harsher law. Um, And you've had the European Union cracking down on, you know, any sort of foreign funding and basically labeling organizations Russian agents based on no due process whatsoever. And yet, you know, obviously what's good for that particular goose is not good for the Georgian gander. Because when the Georgian government says, okay, wait, maybe, you know, all of these so-called, you know, uh, non-governmental organizations that are essentially entirely funded by George Soros or other, you know, Uh, or the U.S. government, or Norwegian government, or the EU, or whatever, through any sort of uh, number of cutouts, maybe they should be accountable. Maybe they should be transparent. You can't just, you know, create all of these proposals and initiatives backed by foreign money and then then claim to be a Georgian Democrat. Well, that's clearly unacceptable to the West. So it it really tells you everything about
2: the
7: values that these people claim to profess. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar.
2: Thank you, Don. Just in from um, independent journalist Ann Garrison, the majority of the 18th, 118th Congress voted against the resolution directing the president, pursuant to Section 5C of the War Powers Resolution, to remove the United States' armed forces from Syria. Congress voted electronically, and the vote type was yay and nay. Congress voted against. This resolution, with 103 yeas, 321 nays, and 11 members of Congress, did not vote. Now, International News Digest from non-NATO media with Pop Polina Vasilyev.
10: For KPFK Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. Turkish opposition parties finally agreed on a joint candidate to be running against Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Details with Press TV.
11: An alliance of six Turkish opposition parties has nominated Republican People Party Chairman Kemal Kilisdaroglu as the joint presidential candidate. Kilesh Daroglu will be running against President Rajab Tayyip Erdogan in the upcoming May 14 elections, with mayors of Istanbul and Ankara, Ekrem Imamoglu and Mansur Yawash, to be appointed as vice presidents. This was the condition of EE party leader Miral Akshaner to rejoin the alliance after a debate last week, where she refused the naming of Kilesh Daroglu as the alliance's candidate, which led to her quitting the bloc before rejoining on Monday. Kılıçdaroğlu not only aims at ousting President Erdogan, but also to reverse many of his policies on foreign affairs, economy and civil rights.
3: As the nation's
12: alliance, we will rule Turkey with consultation and consensus. The six opposition parties of the Nation alliance have agreed on a strengthened parliamentary system. During the transition to the parliamentary system, the leaders of other parties
5: will be the vice presidents.
11: The Justice and Development Party, or the AKP, was counting on opposition parties' failure to find a consensus candidate. However, now that most of opposition parties, including the biggest one, has agreed on one candidate, many believe the opposition has a bigger chance to topple Erdogan and his alliance.
10: The prominent Tunisian politician's daughter is urging Britain to seek the release of Saeed Farjani, who was arrested by the Tunisian government last month in an alleged effort to silence critics of the country's president.
11: Tunisia is heading down a very worrying path of authoritarianism and it is important that the UK speaks out strongly against this. As a democratically elected politician and leading figure in Tunisian politics, My dad has played an instrumental role in promoting democracy and human rights in Tunisia since the Arab Spring. His imprisonment, along with at least 16 other political prisoners this month, including politicians, journalists and judges, is a blatant attempt to suppress opposition voices.
10: RT's Fiorella Isabel has more.
1: Saeed Farjani was arrested in the North African country last month. He is held on charges that accuse him of conspiring against the state and fomenting chaos. Ferjani previously lived in exile in the UK before returning to Tunisia after the so-called 2011 revolution and serving as an MP from the ANADA party. Tunisia's post-Arab Spring government has often been accused of corruption and widespread ineffectiveness. Following the 2011 revolution, Tunisia's economic growth has virtually stalled. While some established economic monopolies have remained, the public sector has been gripped by labor strikes. Tunisia's current president was elected in 2019 amid record low voter turnout and has struggled to secure public support. Tunisians have been rallying in support of political prisoners in the nation. We heard from locals in the streets of the country's capital.
13: Today, we consider security forces as non-Republican. They are affiliated to Kais Saeed, who is illegitimate because he breached the Constitution, abused the trust, and dismantled the state. He is an illegitimate
5: who perpetrated a crime against the country, and those security forces have prevented us from rallying, even though we had notified them about it 72 hours in advance, as per law.
12: This president has no ears. He does not listen to anyone. He is a dictator who does not have the capacity to dictate, and he puts people in prison because he
9: fears it and does not know that activists do not fear any prison.
5: I am here today to support the detainees, or rather, they are kidnapped by the state because there is no legal action against them. There is a detainee, Rashid al kayari in critical condition, and he is suffering from a disease, and he is on the brink of death. Likewise, there is another guy whose health condition is critical. So they are not detainees, but kidnapped and about to die. There are numerous humanitarian cases like them.
1: Red Star Radio editor and political analyst Alexander McKay says just holding elections doesn't make a democratic nation.
14: The issues that created the Arab Spring in Tunisia, which were fundamentally economic issues and also the revolt in Egypt, which was again about economic issues. Those problems have largely not been solved by the governments that came to power after the Arab Spring revolts. It's been made much worse. And this comes down to questions of sovereignty. Until these nations, um, the the Arab nations, are uh, recover their sovereignty, are able to assert their sovereignty, uh, both on an economic and a political level, then these problems are going to keep reoccurring because it is about fundamentally control of the economy by a local elite that is tied to Western powers, mainly the Europeans and the Americans, and therefore you have governments which are not acting in the interest of the great masses of the people. You can have all the elections and summits about democracy that you like, but unless you are securing sovereignty,
10: An incident involving a Quran being damaged at a school in Northern England has sparked a new fight over blasphemy and respect for religious rights in the UK. Robert Carter has this report.
15: A heated debate has been sparked following the news of four teenage students being suspended from a school in Wakefield, Northern England, over a Quran desecration incident. Right-wingers in the media have condemned the suspensions, alleging that the pressure is coming from Muslims in the community trying to enforce de facto blasphemy laws.
14: I don't care about your religious book. I don't care if it's a Bible, the Torah or anything else for that matter. These are kids at school. The police acted, recorded it as a non-crime hate incident and the boys were, the four pupils were, were suspended. So that shows that we now have de facto blasphemy laws in the
7: UK.
15: The students at Kettlethorpe High School were removed after a copy of the Islamic holy text was partially torn and scuffed. It was brought into the school by a year 10 pupil, reportedly as part of a dare. Rumours quickly spread about the incident, some claiming the Quran had been burned, with a protest planned outside school gates. Amid growing community distress, police and religious leaders intervened staging a press conference at a local mosque. A mother of one of the pupils involved apologised for her son's conduct.
11: Firstly, um, thank you so much for letting me come here today to speak to you. I know that what my son has done is disrespectful. Um, he didn't have any malicious intent, um, but he's a very, very silly 14-year-old boy. Um, who does have some challenges. He he does suffer with high functioning autism. It means that socially he doesn't always realise what is appropriate and what's not appropriate.
15: After debunking some of the myths surrounding the story and after realising the distress caused to an autistic teenager, the local protest was quickly abandoned. Local religious leaders called for calm and forgiveness. Right-wing pundits, however, were not content to rest. Accusations of the family being forced to an apology sparked an online firestorm with Islamophobic trolling in abundance. News of the death threats circulated the headlines with few reports adding the important context. The threats came from another student, not from Muslims in the wider community. Home Secretary Suella Braverman adopted the idea of Muslims enforcing de facto blasphemy laws.
1: Blasphemy is not a crime in Great Britain. Religion cannot demand special protection in an open society based on freedom of speech.
15: Onlookers have expressed concern over the Islamophobic spin being added to the story and a failure to properly represent the Muslim reaction.
8: The wakefield Quran story was certainly tainted with a level of Islamophobia. And as a Muslim in Great Britain, part of an ethnic minority and a growing ethnic minority, it's only natural and valid to have concerns about this because we do not want to be misrepresented.
15: Wakefield is not far from an area called Batley, which is where a similar blasphemy scandal erupted just last year, where a local teacher was found to be sharing insulting caricatures of Islam's beloved prophet to students. Elsewhere across Europe, regular far-right Quran-burning demonstrations have become increasingly more commonplace. This all appears to have put Muslims on the defensive, as their religious beliefs are coming under regular attack and mockery by far-right activists.
10: And that's all in today's International Highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK,
4: I'm Paulina Vasiliev. KPFK Rebel
2: Alliance News, Los Angeles. In 2019, the state-owned Chinese National Nuclear Corporation took over the Rossing Uranium Mine and promised they would respect the labor rights of the Mine Workers Union of Namibia, who represented the workers. However, three years ago, they fired the entire union branch leadership of nine workers in an effort to bust the union. We spoke with two of their leaders about their upcoming arbitration and efforts to get their jobs back.
16: This is Steve Zeltzer, and today we're looking at the long struggle of the uranium miners in Namibia who work at the Chinese National Nuclear Corporation Rossing Mine. And on September 29th, 2020, uh, after the CNN Chinese National Nuclear Corporation took over the mine, they had promised that they would not uh, go against the union contract, the labor conditions, but they fired nine of the union branch leaders of the Mine Workers Union of Namibia Rossing Branch. And since that time, they have stalled the arbitration since 2020, September 29, 2020, and are basically trying to starve the miners out by uh, using lawyers and uh, corruption of the, uh, the whole system of arbitration in uh, Namibia, in labor arbitration. And joining us today, workers, uh, who are leaders of the struggle of the miners. Uh, George Martin, who it was the secretary of the union, they said that they weren't going to retaliate against the union, they wouldn't try to get rid of the union. Uh, what happened when they took over? And what uh, were you uh, surprised by the methods that the Chinese National Nuclear Corporation used against you? It's,
12: it's, it's, very, it's very sad to be dismissed for, 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 for nothing. I don't even know why I'm actually dismissed. The only thing, the only reason that was stated on my dismissal letter is uh, you are dismissed because you are a member of the union. And it's wrong, it's very wrong for for, for for union rights to be taken away just like that. Or it's it's like you don't have a voice to speak out anything or when you see something that is not, Right you you are just you, you just have to keep quiet, and that is what's happening now We, we have people that have been victimized and that that, that decided not to uh, to go forward in their fight for, for workers' freedom so
16: and this is what what the companies want and the effort to stall your arbitration which you are supposed to have under Namibian labor law how many times have your has your arbitration been postponed i mean it seems like it's a never ending process you get ready to go to arbitration and they cancel it
12: yeah um if you if you if you our very first date of arbitration was set down in in 2020 december that was the very first arbitration hearing we had Then it was postponed, because uh, the company representative could not make it. Uh, It was postponed to 2021 Feb. In Feb, again, it was postponed because the company representative got sick. It was postponed to June, July in 2021. Uh, We had our sitting in 2021, June, July and then it was again postponed to 2022 in Feb. Uh, of which we did not have a hearing, it was postponed again to June 20, 2022 of which we had a set down um, for four, five, four days, four days uh, arbitration hearing and then it was again moved to to August, August, September 2022 of which we did not have a hearing, it, it was postponed. Uh, imagine from September or from June, it was postponed to September, in September we did not have a hearing, up to this date today, which is uh, the, the, the 17th of Feb, 2023. We got our notice of hearing uh, towards the end of January, 2023, saying that our hearing will be set down on the 28th of March to the 31st of March. Uh, Comrade Steve, it's really sad. Um, When you look at the Labor Act, it states clearly that arbitration should be finalized within six months. Our case has been dragging for almost three years now, which... Uh, the update I can give you, we are currently just hearing the company's case. We, we did not go into our case. We, the company did not give us the amount of witnesses that they are going to use every day or every time we ever sit down. There's new witnesses that come up. Um, with the, with, with the aim of trying to prolong this case. We are tired Comrade Steve. People. I don't know what tactics they are using and, um, I don't know (laughs) the, the words are even out of my mouth to describe what is, what is happening here because it's becoming a circus. People are not taking these things serious and it's people's life that we are, lives that we are talking about. It's our livelihoods of our family and ourselves that, that is, that has been put on hold and it's business as usual for the other people.
3: And Hennes. Hi everyone. I'm actually Albertus Alexander Hennes uh, the vice chairman of the former browsing branch. Chairperson, currently now, as union members in Namibia, you 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 have it's like you have a loaded gun pointed on you because we have majority of of, 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 of workers in namibia working for a certain company and if you see that uh it's, it's the same as if you come into someone's house and he's he, he's having a dog uh, a pet bull for example and you shoot the dog in front of another dog the other dogs in the house will not be able to attack rossing was one of the fundamental uh, unions ever in in, in rosing uh, in namibia because currently now, um, if you look at it, Rosing is one of the oldest mines in, 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 in Namibia. And we have all the, 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 the agreements and things in place. When the Chinese took over, they wanted to change it. And with the changing, uh, we were a threat. And they attacked us, the branch executives, in our personal capacities. And when they attack us in our personal capacities, even the members got afraid to say that if they can do what they did to the branch executive, who am I on a lower uh, on on a lower level? So it, it is it is it is it is in a way putting people in a difficult situation where they cannot defend themselves. It has been now two years and a half that we are fighting our case at the labor. Labor, labor, in the labor commissioner's office, but it is high time. Maybe it is high time that we will take on uh, Rossing to say that you are actually infre- infringing on our on our human rights to say freedom of association. Just because we are union members, we got fired. Just because we are union members, talking the truth for the employees and for the members we were attacked but today we are sitting we are sitting at our houses with financial issues we are sitting with with stress we are sitting with all kind of emotional traumas and all all that we are sitting with that and currently now today we we are just trying to make the best of it and trying to make ends meet we we are elected as, as chairpersons and vice chairpersons and secretaries in the union activity. What transpired is that after we were dismissed unlawfully, we actually inform the the, um, the stewards on the subfloor to say that they need to take over for smooth operations of For the union on the mine, and what the company did was to also dismiss that person for a reason that they thought it was relevant, and that and that uh, employee was dismissed. So currently, now the the employees who uh, the sub steward who took over from us, they are also under threat. And when we are talking, we cannot be talking as if we don't know that they are also under a threat. So for us currently now is that our comrades are in a difficult time currently now because they don't have a leg to stand on because they saw that the company can take you on, on your individual capacity and
16: remove you from your livelihood. You you're going to have another arbitration on March the 28th. Uh again, and you're working to get that the lawyer for that arbitration. What would you like people to do around the world in in to make sure that you have uh justice and you 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 get a your jobs back and get compensation for the illegal action by the Chinese National Nuclear Corporation. What can people do?
12: It's um it's good it's it's a very good question to say what can people do? For a person that is that is down on his knees, and is fighting with everything that is God. Uh, solidarity, in any form, is 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 what is, is what is, is what we need. Whether it's being putting pressure on this Chinese company, whether it's putting pressure on the Labour's Commissioner's Office for a speedy resolution. Whether it's uh, suppo- uh, pushing pushing pressure on IOL to 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 recognize what we are going through, and whether it's financial support that people can 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 give, it's it's accepted because when you are when you are when you are fighting this type of of, of struggles, any form of support or any form of solidarity is 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 truly is truly accepted and is truly helpful to, to push a comrade forward.
4: KPFK Rebel Alliance
2: News Los Angeles The Nanemian miners are calling for a solidarity action on March 28th around the world at Chinese embassies and consulates to demand that the Chinese National Nuclear Corporation rehire them. You can find out more about their case at info at UFCLP.org. That's info at UFCLP.org. Dr. Sakivu Hutchison, founder of the Women's Leadership Project, brings a commentary called Shelter from the Storm about the CDC's recent report on skyrocketing levels of sadness and depression among girls and queer youth.
13: In her book, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, published in 1861, the 19th century abolitionist and author Harriet Jacobs entitles one chapter, The Trials of Girlhood. In it, she describes the ritualized sexual violence that enslaved black girls were subjected to during the antebellum period. Upon turning 15, Jacobs noted that, quote, there's no shadow of law to protect enslaved girls from insult, from violence, or even from death. All these are inflicted by fiends who bear the shape of men. For Jacobs, the fact that these atrocities were committed against black girls under the guise of Christian morality was another brutal contradiction. Flash forward to the 21st century, and Jacobs' experiences with rape culture's trauma continued to reverberate for black girls and femmes. According to a new CDC report, 57% of girls and 69% of gay, lesbian, or bi teens reported feeling sadness every day for at least two weeks during the previous year. And 14% of girls, up from 12% in 2011, said they had been forced to have sex at some point in their lives, as did 20% of gay, lesbian, or bi adolescents. Nationwide, black girls have some of the highest rates of domestic and sexual violence victimization, with nearly 60% experiencing sexual abuse by the time they turn 18. When I was growing up in the 80s, There was virtually no language to support black girl survivors like me, much less a national platform or movement. It was, quote, understood that sexual harassment, sexual violence, and teen dating violence were just part of the trials of being young, black, and female. It was understood that the trials of being a black boy superseded and took precedence over black girls' trauma. Black folks did not take to the streets en masse, to demand an end to sexual and domestic violence. And beyond slavery and misogynist, victim-blaming rap and rock lyrics, there are largely no mainstream portrayals of black girls' experiences with sexual violence. Influential texts such as Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings or Intozaki Shangi's For Color Girls Who Consider Suicide When the Rainbow Was Enough were rarely taught in middle school or high school settings. This erasure was compounded by the fact that white women's sexual violence victims were almost always the lead protagonists in soap opera dramas and those infamous after-school specials that once dominated network TV. In the eighth grade, I read Alice Walker's The Color Purple and was riveted by the narrator Celie's voice. Her poignant questioning, an unapologetic affirmation of her own truth amidst the pain of rape, abuse, and abandonment, powerfully illustrated how writing could provide healing space. Decades later, I was well into my 30s when I read Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. Morrison's searing indictment of sexual violence, colorism, internalized racism, and segregation is as potent today as it was during the 70s when it was published. As seen through the eyes of young black girls, the story of The Bluest Eye is at once tragic and triumphant. Triumphant because it hints at the complexities of black female agency in the midst of generational trauma. The only difference between the girlhood trials of Morrison's protagonist, Picola Breedlove, and those of contemporary black girls, is the Internet. Because if Picola existed today, she'd be cyberbullied into silence, gaslighted about her trauma, branded as a race traitor, and told to just pray it away. According to the CDC's Kaplan Ethier, quote, of every 10 teen girls that you know, at least one of them, possibly more, have been raped. And so not surprisingly, we're also seeing that almost 60% of teen girls had depressive symptoms in the past year. The report confirms that these levels are the highest reported in a decade. And moreover, one in three girls had seriously considered attempting suicide, which is up by 60% over the last decade. And among teens who identify as LGBTQ+, more than half reported experiencing poor mental health, while one in five had actually attempted suicide in the past year. Further, from 2003 to 2019, suicide among black girls increased by 59%. The biggest increase occurred among 12 to 14-year-old girls. The CDC report was based on the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. Which was given to 17,000 teens in the fall of 2021. Nationwide, girls across ethnicity are experiencing record levels of violence, much of which is normalized as a kind of rite of passage and exceeds what males are experiencing. This casual, routinized violence silences scores of black girls, young women, and queer folks. As one of my 10th grade students put it, the violence that girls experience is so normalized that many don't even know how to classify it. Being called out of one's name or being slapped on the butt can easily progress to being pushed, grabbed, and pressured to have sex. Victims struggle to be heard and validated, often going against the grain of school cultures where violence against girls and female identified youth is not taken seriously. Sexism and sexual violence are not deemed to be a public health crisis and Black and BIPOC girls face rampant denial that it is important. This lack of priority is reflected in the language used to describe, demean, sexualize, and police Black girls' behavior. And at the same time, the everyday gun homicide that occurs in communities of color rarely receives the same media attention, and Black women and girls pay the steepest price. How many girls have to die... Or psychologically languish before our communities mobilize to end the epidemic levels of gender based violence they are experiencing. Free accessible therapy, arts based healing, youth leadership support, and community building opportunities, as well as literature circles featuring black feminist, womanist, BIPOC, and queer authors, can provide coping resources for and safe havens from the unrelenting violence black girls themes of color, and queer youth experience in their everyday lives. Regular check-ins from engaged adult mentors on the hopes, aspirations, fears, and dreams of youth with anxiety can also be healing. Because at the end of the day, depression and sadness shouldn't be normalized as the constant companions girls and queer youth carry with them. This is Sakivu Hutchinson from the Women's Leadership Project reporting for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News.
2: Thank you, Dr. Hutchison, for more information about the Women's Leadership Program. Go to womensleadershipla.org for Women's Leadership Project. Well, we are ready for our calendar. Yes, Rebel Alliance News calendar, community tips. Here we go. Little Women Speak, Inc., third annual virtual brunch and learn conference in honor of Women's History Month, featuring women and young women speakers, Saturday, March 25th, 11 a.m., for ages 8 to 13, and high schoolers where they are building confidence and teaching the art of public speaking. Register by March 15th to receive your event kit on time at Eventbrite and search for Little Women Speak, Incorporated. National Day of Action Against Police Terror. March 9th, demanding justice for Tyree Nichols and Tortiquita and all others lost and impacted by police violence and terror. Cities with planned actions are Atlanta, Boston, Dallas, Detroit, D.C., Greenville, North Carolina, Honolulu, Jackson, Mississippi, Los Angeles, San Diego, and more. Check out nationaldayofaction.info for times and locations. Join Stop LAPD Spying Coalition community meetings weekly Tuesdays nights on Zoom at 6 p.m. Visit stoplapdspying.org or Facebook for details and check out their program on KPFK Morning Mix Radio Insurrection Thursdays 8 a.m. with Hamid Khan. Positive Results Center Prom Gift Away for any female, regardless of where she is from or financial status. They are giving girls a -a once-in-a-lifetime shopping experience, and everything they need for prom is free. You can also volunteer or donate new or clean, gently used prom attire and accessories. Event takes place on Saturday, March 18th. 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at The Beehive, 1000 East 60th Street in Los Angeles. For details or to register, go to prc123.org. Another prom drive and giveaway is with Glass Slip, the Glass Slipper Foundation for their third year to benefit the youth in Inglewood and surrounding schools in the district. Call 323-385-2955 for more info on how to drop off your prom attire donations or to participate. Calling new shooters to reinforce your basic shooting concepts and intermediate shooters to test your fundamentals and push beyond basic applications with Stephanie for the next Shooter's Cipher on Sunday, March 19th. For more information, email Shooter's at gmail.com. That's Shooter's at gmail.com. Join Black Women for Wellness Environmental Justice Team for an event about loving your hair. Curls and Conversations, Color Me Beautiful. Thursday, March 9th, 638, 6.30 p.m. at With Love Market and Cafe, 1969 Vermont Avenue in Los Angeles. Later on Friday, March 10th, Celebrate Women Globally. For International Women's Day at the Department of Water and Power Community Room, 4030 Crenshaw Boulevard at 9 a.m. For more information on black women for wellness or to RSVP for these events, go to BWWLA.org. Well, I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions. You've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. KPFK is a progressive media outlet challenging corporate media perspectives and providing a voice to the voiceless communities. Help KPFK, a strong and independent source of music, arts, news, and information. And donate at kpfk.org. If you want to become part of our news show, if you have story ideas or comments, please email us at newskpfk.org. Thanks to our engineer, Wendell Handy, Ann Garrison, Polina Nasiliev, Don DeBar, and Steve Zeltzer, and all Rebel Alliance news contributors. We hope you will join us again tomorrow at 6 p.m. Remember this, I am the great, great granddaughter of Lydia Miller-Mungin. I am the great-granddaughter of Lydia's daughter, Laura Mungeon Preston Williams. I am the granddaughter of Laura's daughter, Rose Preston Arkwright. I am the daughter of Rose's daughter, Shirley Arkwright-Taylor. I am Angela Birdsong. Until then, let all that you do be done with love. Have a great evening, Los Angeles. And coming up next is Feminist Magazine.
3: 7K, PFK, Los Angeles